Hello, and welcome to Genesis chapter 9. We are going to be wrapping up the story of Noah today. Last week, we covered Genesis 7 and 8. We looked at Noah, the ark, the flood, and at the end of it, uh, the water had recited, receded, excuse me, the water had receded, and uh, Noah and his family and the near 7,000 animals uh, were able to leave the ark near Mount Ariat, which we talked about last week. So today what we're going to be looking at is um, the start of lo- the new, uh, n- new life for Noah. Uh, we're going to look at uh, some elements of um, the life being in the blood. We're going to talk about uh, being meat eaters versus vegetarians. We're going to talk about the first covenant that God made with mankind. And then there's an interesting thing that happens at the end of chapter 9, uh, which we really don't quite understand what happened to Noah, and it ends um, uh, in a curse that he gives to his grandson. So we're going to talk about all those things. Uh, before we do that, let's uh, dedicate this time to God. Lord, thank you. Thank you for your word. Thank you that we can study it. Thank you that we have the means to do so. Lord, I pray that you will speak through me and that you will speak directly to the person that's listening to this right now, Lord. Be with me. Be with them. Speak to us, Lord. Teach us something about your character. Proud this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, uh, for those that have been watching, you've met Lexi before. This is Kenzie. Kenzie, seriously. You're on camera right now. Yes, it's not time to be cleaning. This is Lexi, who uh, not everybody has met. Hi, Lexi. These are my two Bernie's Mountain Dogs that uh, often come to the office. Uh, So sometimes you'll see Lexi uh, come into the shot, but uh, she typically goes and lays down over there. I don't know why I'm introducing her other than the fact that these are our, my wife and I's uh, two Bernie's Mountain Dogs. We did get a new puppy. Uh, It has nothing to do with Noah, but uh, the puppy is sound asleep uh, over in the pen. Uh, She is a little tiny cavapoo, and eventually you might see her uh, running around as well, but these are my companions. Uh, in the midst of the Bible study. Okay, we're trying to keep this whole thing to uh, under 50 minutes, and on that note, let's get started. So I've broken this up into several chunks, as I usually do, and the first chunk we're going to cover is going from uh, Genesis 9, verses 1 through 7. So why don't you follow along? God's covenant with Noah is the title that my NIV has. Then God blessed Noah and his sons, saying to them, Be fruitful and increase in number and fill the earth. The fear and dread of you will fall on all the beasts of the earth and all the birds in the sky, on every creature that moves along the ground, and on all the fish in the sea. They are given into your hands. Everything that lives and moves about will be food for you. Just as I gave you the green plants, I now give you everything. But you must not eat meat that has lifeblood in it. And for your lifeblood, I will surely demand an accounting. I will demand an accounting from every animal and from each human being too. I will demand an accounting for the life of another human being. Whoever sheds human blood, by humans shall their blood be shed. For in the image of God has God made mankind. As for you, be fruitful and increase in number, multiply on the earth and increase upon it. Now, this is actually quite similar uh, to the opening of Genesis 1. Uh, Very similar. In fact, let's flip over to that. Uh, Leave your finger here and let's flip over to Genesis 1, uh, 28. 
God blessed them, Genesis 1.28, God blessed them and said to them, be fruitful, increase in number, fill the earth and subdue it, rule over the fish of the sea and the birds in the sky and every living creature that moves on the ground. Then God said, I give you everything, every seed-bearing plant, excuse me, I give you every seed-bearing plant on the face of the whole earth and every tree that has fruit and seed in it, they will be yours for food. And to all the beasts of the earth and all the birds in the sky and all the creatures that move along the ground, everything that has the breath of life in it, I give you every green plant for food, and it was so. So we see uh, here God give a similar uh, command to Noah as he gave to Adam, uh, go forth and be fruitful and multiply. This is your earth. This is uh, your land to live in. And there is a charge of being stewards over it. There is an interesting thing here, though, is that... uh, there is, when you read Genesis 1, there's some question about whether or not people were vegetarians. Uh, God says, I give you evergreen plant and every uh, tree that bears fruit for food. He then says, and all the beasts of the field, etc. But uh, there's stipulation that, well, that might have meant that you are in charge of them, but you're not meant to eat them. And we see further uh, reaffirmation of this, that before the flood, mankind was vegetarian. And the reason why we know that is because God says straight up right here, just as I gave you the green plants, that's previously, I now give you everything. I now give you everything to eat. So after the flood, people started eating meat. But it's an interesting thing that that God spells out here for him in regard to the life blood. In regard to the life blood. We see that uh, uh, in verse 4. Uh, but you must not eat meat that has the lifeblood still in it. And for your lifeblood, I will show you the man in accounting. Uh, it's said several times. And then there's this also this verse of whoever sheds human blood by human blood will be shed. Uh, so I want to talk about this for a moment. Deuteronomy 12, 23. But be sure you do not eat the blood because the blood is the life. You must not eat the life with the meat. So there's this interesting question of what is, what is God talking about here? And still to this day, so m- mankind today, science, we are able to create artificial hearts. Uh, we are able to transplant organs. We are able to replace things and do all kinds of stuff to our bodies. But blood, blood is, we cannot artificially create it, uh, which is why... there's the blood drives, which is why people need to give blood because when an injury happens, a hospital has to replace the blood lost by the injured with somebody else's blood that matches their blood type because life is in the blood. It is an essential thing for us to be able to survive. And we, as of yet, have not been able to artificially uh, create blood. Um, Blood is not to be food So when a sacrifice is offered, and we're going to talk about that in the future, of the Levitical sacrificial system, what they would do is they would drain all of the blood out, and they would take some of that blood and put it as an offering uh, to God. But they made sure never to eat any meat that had blood still in it. And the reason for this is that there's an ancient, ancient, pagan cult traditions were that if you ate and drank the blood of something you killed, 
you then took on the power of that animal or human. So if your enemy, if you kill your enemy and you drink your enemy's blood, you take on their power. If you kill a tiger and drink the tiger's blood, you then take on the power of a tiger. It was a pagan uh, perspective, an ungodly uh, practice that was in the culture um, after Noah. It was an element. And so God made sure to make it very clear that this is not something to be done, that the life is in the blood. And there's this element of respect that is due to any created uh, creature. And that's one of the reasons why you are supposed to drain the blood out. There's also an element, um, one perspective is from a health standpoint, is there's a lot of diseases and whatnot that can be transferred in the blood. And so when you slaughter an animal, you drain all the blood out of it first, and then you uh, cut it up and you cook it, as opposed to, Drinking the blood. Now, this doesn't mean that you can't have a medium rare or a rare steak that still has a little bit of blood in it. That, that, that's okay. Uh, the difference is doing this as a cult-type practice. Uh, what I want to do is read, flip over to Leviticus chapter 17. So leave your finger here and flip over to Leviticus chapter 17. Uh, and we're going to pick it up on verse 10. Leviticus 17, 10. I will set my face against any Israelite or any foreigner residing among them who eats blood, and I will cut them off from the people. For the life of a creature is in the blood, and I have given it to you to make atonement for yourselves on the altar. It is the blood that makes atonement for one's life. Therefore I say to the Israelites, none of you may eat blood, nor may any foreigner residing among you eat blood. The important thing to note here the life of the creatures in the blood, and I have given it to you to make atonement for yourselves on the altar. It is the blood that makes atonements for one's life. For further study, if you want to dig into this, uh, Leviticus 16 goes into and explains the uh, Levitical system of the sacrifices uh, done in the tabernacle and then eventually done in the temple. Uh, of animal sacrifices that were done for the atonement of sin. And to keep going on this, you have Leviticus 16 outlines this, is is that you take something that's very valuable to you. Uh, We even saw this at the very beginning of creation. You have Adam and Eve and Cain and Abel. And as you'll recall, uh, one brings uh, a blood offering from their flock. The other one brings... Uh, vegetables from the field, and God sees favorably on one versus the other, not to say that meat is better, but we see at the very beginning of creation the sacrifice of an animal. And the reason being is, is it is a humongous sacrifice because it is their, their, their livelihood, their sustenance, and they are giving an animal to be sacrificed. And it was done uh, in an atoning fashion, meaning that there is a uh, atonement for sin by sacrificing something that is incredibly valuable to you. And that was the idea of the system. I'm not going to go into it and explain it, but it's an interesting study, is to go and read Leviticus 16 and look at how uh, to the Jews and in that time uh, sacrifices were made as an atonement. And then to continue on that study, here's a question. 
Exodus is the next book in the Bible, and you see uh, Moses, the instrument of God to bring the people, the Jews, out of enslavement under the Egyptians, right? Well, we see Passover. Passover is the last of the plagues in which the spirit of death comes and kills all of the firstborn males in Egypt. But for those who sacrifice the Passover lamb, and in Exodus it's outlined very specifically, it's supposed to be a one-year-old spotless lamb that is killed and the blood is put on the doorpost. There's very specific instructions on what you're supposed to do. And this celebration, the Passover, is still celebrated by Jews today. But this lamb is killed and slaughtered and because of the sacrifice and the blood put on the doorpost, that house is passed over. This then is an illustration of Jesus. And the reason why he is called the Lamb of God is because he is our Passover Lamb. This entire sacrificial system is in place from the very beginning, and it's in the blood. The blood is uh, critical to it, and we see Jesus say at the Last Supper, when he takes the bread and breaks it, this is my body, and he takes the cup, says this represents my blood, the blood of the new covenant made in my blood. It all connects, it all points to Jesus, and it all it, that's what we're talking about right here when you look at the life and the blood. So it's very significant and it's huge. And so when, when you do, uh, we are able to eat meat. It doesn't mean that uh, we're supposed to go back to being vegetarians. But <laughs> if you are uh, practicing the pagan practice of drinking the blood of the animal after you kill it, stop. Uh, and after you murder somebody drinking their blood, you shouldn't do that. That's wrong. Okay, uh, continuing on. Oh, and the Bible verse, if you want to, on the Passover lamb, uh, John 6 53 through 54. John 6, 53 through 54 uh, actually talks about the fact that um, we are to do communion in representation of Christ's sacrifice. This is actually one of the reasons why skeptics in the first century, uh, they saw the Christians as being cannibals because of the practice of communion uh, where we eat the bread and we eat the bread and we drink the cup in representation of, uh, but they saw it as a cannibalistic practice of us uh, drinking Christ's blood and eating His body. It's an interesting study. Okay, continuing on, we are um, trying to keep on time here. So Genesis nine eight through seventeen. Then God said to Noah and to his sons with him, I now establish my covenant with you and with your descendants after you and with every living creature that was with you, the birds, the livestock, and all the wild animals, all those that came out of the ark with you, every living creature on earth, I establish my covenant with you. Never again will all life be destroyed by waters of a flood. Never again will there be a flood to destroy the earth. And God said, this is the sign of the covenant I am making between me and you and every living creature with you, a covenant for all generations to come. I have set my rainbow in the clouds and it will be a sign of the covenant between me and the earth. Whenever I bring clouds over the earth and the rainbow appears in the clouds, I will remember my covenant between me and you and never 
uh, and all living creatures of every kind, never again will the waters become a flood to destroy all life. Whenever the rainbow appears in the clouds, I will see it and remember the everlasting covenant between God and all living creatures of every kind on the earth. So God said to Noah, this is the sign of the covenant I have established between me and all life on earth. So this, in the covenantal system, covenantalism, uh, a covenant is a contract. It is an agreement. Um, the term cut covenant. You, you, today, when you buy a house, you sign a covenant, you sign an agreement. It's the same thing. When you cut covenant, the idea there is in this agreement, you buy some land, you, any of those things, it's a covenant, it's an agreement, it's a contract. And there are two types of contracts that God creates, covenants that God creates. Unconditional covenants and conditional covenants. Unconditional covenants mean that regardless of what you do, God is going to keep his part of the bargain. A conditional covenant means that between these two people, let's say you're buying a plot of land. I am buying this plot of land and in exchange for this plot of land, you are giving me uh, this number of sheep. You are paying me this amount. Each person is supposed to bring to the table um, their half, their portion. And we're gonna see this with Abraham and God, God's covenant with him of the cutting of the covenant. You actually, there, there was a practice that we're gonna see when we see Abraham of actually cutting animals in half and then walking through them, not through the animal, but having one half on this side and one half on that side. And then the two parties of the covenant walking through in between the two together. And the idea being, if either of us break this covenant, may this happen to us. It was a big deal. It was, it was more significant than the actual signing. It was saying that, that I'm not gonna break this deal and you're not gonna break this deal. But an unconditional covenant means that God is gonna do his portion and mankind needs to do nothing. So the major covenants, what are the major covenants? Well, we have right here the covenant with Noah. God's unconditional covenant with Noah and the people to follow is that he will never destroy the earth with a flood. Now, it doesn't mean he's never going to destroy the earth. The earth will be uh, rolled up like a used garment, as Revelation says, uh, and it, it, it does have a timeline on it. Second uh, Peter chapter 3, we looked at last week, talking about the end times, and God will not destroy the world with a flood. Second Peter 3 talks about the fact that it's going to be with a fervent heat. Everything's going to burn. Everything's going to melt. That is coming. That judgment is coming. But the Noahic covenant, the covenant with Noah, is a promise never to destroy the earth with a flood. Now, the symbol of that we're going to come back and talk about is the rainbow. Um, let me keep going on the covenants and we'll come back to the rainbow. There's also the Abrahamic covenant. The Abrahamic covenant is the covenant with Abraham, obviously. Uh, and that is in Genesis 15, uh, 9 through 21, and again in Genesis 17 are the two elements of this covenant. This is an unconditional covenant. This is where the, the outline of the promised land that is still contested to this day, God outlines what the promised land is for the Jews, the land that Israel was given by God 
um, they have not possessed to this day, they still have not possessed the full scope of what God promised them of the promised land uh, as Israel is today. It's a very small portion of, of what God promised. Another element of the unconditional uh, Abrahamic covenant, the covenant with Abraham, is that I will bless the nations that bless you and I will curse the nations that curse you. The entire world will be blessed through you. This is a prophecy leading towards the Messiah. The Messiah would come through the Jews and the entire earth will be blessed through them. But this is an unconditional covenant, meaning it still exists to this day with Israel. And you can see that in world news. In fact, uh, there's been books that have been written, studies that have been done. When you look at American history and what presidents have done and the way America has treated Israel as a nation, there is a direct correlation. When America does positive things to help Israel, there are positive effects that happen to the United States. When America does bad things, uh, or whatever you want to call it, things that are harmful to Israel, America suffers for it. Now, the, the skeptic and the, uh, the atheist will say, well, <laughs> you're just, th those are not correlated in any way whatsoever, but it's an interesting study. You can do a Google search for it. It's interesting, the, the articles that you can find. And if you believe in the Bible, that covenant is still in place to this day. Other covenants, you have the Mosaic covenant, the Sinaitic covenant are the two names for it. And this is the covenant made at, at uh, Mount Sinai after Exodus, uh, the Ten Commandments, the law. This is the law of Moses. The law was given to Israel by God. This is a conditional covenant. If you do this, I will do this. Uh, Exodus 19 through 24, chapter 19 through 24 goes through this. Exodus 19 uh, five through six. Now, if you obey me fully and keep my covenant, covenant, then out of all nations, you will be my treasured possession. Although the whole earth is mine, you will be for me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. And across chapters 19 through 24, he goes through and spells out all of the rules, all of the things that you must do and all the blessings that will come from this. Verse eight of chapter 19 is the agreement of Israel. We will do everything the Lord has said. Now, as you study Exodus and you study Numbers and as you study uh, through the books of history, you will see a pattern that happens between Israel and God in this covenant of following God, then backsliding. You have the judges that come in that, that, that call the people to repent and follow God. Sometimes they do, sometimes they don't. They always backslide. Then you see the prophets come in and the same thing, repent. This is going to happen if you do not repent and follow God. This will happen. And sometimes they repent and sometimes they don't, but they always backslide. We are no different than the Jews in that regard. Another covenant, the Davidic covenant. It's a covenant that God makes with David. This is in 2 Samuel chapter 7, verses 5 through 16. 2 Samuel 7, 5 through 16. This is an unconditional covenant. Uh, it's a promise to King David that his kingdom will be established over Israel and an heir coming underneath David in David's lineage will sit on the throne of Israel forever. That is a prophecy of the coming Messiah. This is also the reason why 
The genealogy in Matthew 1 is so critical. Why Matthew starts with the genealogy going from Abraham through David and showing how Jesus is in the lineage and a descendant of King David because of this prophecy. It's important. Uh, Matthew started out his gospel with that very critical element because the Jews would be looking for that one critical, that, that was one of the prophecies of the Messiah is that he would be a descendant of David. That's the Davidic covenant. Then there is the new covenant. The new covenant, uh, Jeremiah 31, 31 through 34, is in the Old Testament. This is a prophecy that Jeremiah gives, inspired by God, to Israel, a promise of a new covenant, a covenant based 100% on grace, an unconditional covenant that God will bring and make with mankind. And that's what we see in Jesus Christ. That's what we see at the Last Supper, where Jesus says, this is a new covenant made in my blood the Lamb of God, the sacrifice that was made once for all mankind. That's the covenantal system. Now, uh, getting back to uh, the Noahic covenant or the covenant with Noah, uh, you have the rainbow. The rainbow is God's sign as a reminder. Now, he says that it's a reminder to him, but here's a question for you. Why does the rainbow exist? Does God need a reminder? Does God see the rainbow and go, that's right, I was gonna destroy earth again with a flood, but I see this rainbow, now I remember I made that promise to Noah and all of his descendants. Shoot, I can't flood the earth again. No, no, the rainbow is a reminder for us. And think about it in Noah's day. I was thinking about this. I always try, and I think it's a good practice, to put yourself in, in the shoes of the, the, the person that we're reading about. Noah has been with his family. There's eight individuals on the ark and some 7,000 animals stipulated for a year. They get off and no doubt uh, are ready to stretch their legs. But imagine the creation. Imagine seeing that. I, one of my favorite things, I'm from the Northwest, as I've said before, but um, after a rainstorm, stepping outside and just breathing the fresh air, all the pollution is washed away, and you just, you smell the earth, and you can smell the fresh air. Imagine what that was like for Noah. Imagine stepping off of the ark and smelling that fresh air, and walking through the brand new grass. I would have fallen down on my knees and just been so incredibly grateful. But now imagine the first rainstorm. Imagine that, right? Uh, Noah is starting to uh, uh, work the soil, which we'll talk about here in a second. He's planting crops, and the first rainstorm comes. Imagine how terrified you would be because you just spent a year and you watched everybody that you know and love die, drowned, and you see rain. I mean, the first time it rained, he must have been terrified. The first storm that came was like, God, again, really? And then the rainbow comes through and it is a reminder for Noah. Now we today, when you look at the rainbow, I don't see that. When I look at the rainbow, uh, I, I'm, I'm not like afraid that God is going to flood the earth. Uh, that's not a fear that I have because um, obviously I'm not Noah. So what does the rainbow symbolize? 
The rainbow to me symbolizes God's love. It is a reminder of the covenant, right? It's a reminder for us that God made a covenant that he will not destroy the earth with a flood. And so many people use the rainbow as a symbol of love and acceptance for all. And there is an element of that. So I was curious, um, the homosexual community uh, uses the flag, uh, the, the rainbow flag, as their symbol. I did some research on it. It was 1978 was the first time that the uh, rainbow flag was used as a symbol for homosexuality. It was at a, a gay rally in San Francisco. Before that, I didn't know this, but before that, it was a pink triangle. And they wanted to come up with a new symbol. Why? Because the pink triangle as a symbol for homosexuality was created by the Nazis. It was created by the Nazis in the same way that they gave the Star of David to the Jews. They gave a pink triangle to homosexuals. I completely understand why they wanted a new symbol uh, that was more loving. And the rainbow is a logical choice. You look up in the sky and from a biblical perspective, it is a reminder of God's love. But for me, it's also a reminder of the covenant that God made and the last covenant, the new covenant made in Jesus. So God destroys everything on earth and then he gives us this sign. God does promise that judgment is coming on the earth and that he is gonna destroy the earth and all will be judged and, and it's gonna be with fire. So when I see uh, the rainbow, what I see is a reminder of the, the new covenant in Christ. Christ is to us what the ark was to Noah. God rescued his people, Noah and his family, from the destruction and the judgment. And in the same way, when I see the rainbow up in the sky after a storm, I'm reminded of the fact that another flood is coming, but this time it's, it's fire that's coming. And it, it spurns in me this reality that there's a lot of work to be done. We are not done. Judgment is coming and the end is coming and the job of the Christian is to share the love of Christ. And that covenant is, in Jesus, is our salvation. In the same way that Noah had the ark, we today have Jesus so that we can avoid that judgment. Continuing on, uh, 18 through 28. The sons of Noah who came out of the ark were Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Ham was the father of Canaan. These were the three sons of Noah, and from them came people who were scattered over the whole earth. Noah, a man of the soil, proceeded to plant a vineyard. When he drank some of its wine, he became drunk and lay uncovered inside his tent. Ham, the father of Canaan, saw his father naked and told his two brothers outside. But Shem and Japheth took a garment and laid it across their shoulders. Then they walked in backward and covered their father's naked body. Their faces were turned the other way so that they would not see their father's their father naked. When Noah awoke from his wine and found out what his youngest son had done to him, 
When Noah woke from his wine and found out what his youngest son had done to him, he said, Cursed be Canaan. The lowest of slaves will he be to his brothers. He also said, Praise be to the Lord, the God of Shem. May Canaan be the slave of Shem. May God extend Japheth's territory. May Japheth live in the tents of Shem. And may Canaan be the slave of Japheth. After the flood, Noah lived 350 years. Noah lived a total of 950 years, and then he died. What happened here? This is really interesting. Let's talk about this. Let's break this down. First of all, um, we have the sons of Noah are Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Now, from this, we do get uh, the descendants, um, which are the Japhethites, Japhethites, uh, the Hamites and the Semites are all of the descendants, uh, the people groups of these three. Uh, Japhethites are the descendants of Japheth. Uh, Hamites are the descendants of Ham. And Semites are the descendants of Shem. Now, which people group are the Jews? Semite. Do you recognize that word? Anti-Semite. Anti-Semitic. Shem is the great, 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 it's either five or six or seven greats. I think it's six great grandfathers of Abraham, Father Abraham. So the Jews come from the line of Shem. Ironically, in looking up the definition of Semite is descendants of the Semitic language, which puts both Jews as well as Arabs in that category of being Semites, which I think is rather ironic when the term anti-Semitic or anti-Semite means against the Jews. And Iran, uh, the Arab nation of Iran, um, sees uh, the Jews as uh, the number one enemy and are by definition anti-Semitic, but they're not because they themselves are Semites. I just thought that was interesting. I didn't realize, I mean, that term gets tossed around, anti-Semitic, and I knew that it meant against Jews, being, being prejudiced against Jewish people. I didn't realize where that term comes from, but it comes all the way back from Shem as being one of the descendants. Interesting stuff, right? Uh, okay, so continuing on, uh, we see here Noah, a man of the soil, verse 20. Now, those of you who have an ESV, it says that Noah became a man of the soil. We discussed this in uh, Genesis. It might have been last week. It might have been the previous week that we don't know what Noah's occupation was. What did he do before the flood? We don't know. We don't know if he had any experience being a carpenter or not. We do know that he did make an amazing boat that lasted through uh, a year of being on the water, made entirely of wood. So we do know that, but we don't know what he did before that. We do know afterwards, after the flood, obviously he is gonna become a farmer because he needs to populate the earth and there's nothing built, no infrastructure, so he must be a man of the land. So uh, a man of the soil, a farmer. So he proceeded to plant a vineyard now, he gets drunk. Drunkenness. This is another conversation. Um, let me see my notes here. Drunkenness. What does the Bible say about alcohol? You could do an entire talk 
on this alone on alcohol. Does the Bible forbid drinking alcohol? There are some uh, uh, Christian groups that completely forbid it outright. In Malawi, when I was in Africa, um, the church group there completely forbid it. They don't touch it. It's not allowed uh, for Christians. Now, that is not biblical the, in the sense of making an argument that you should not ever drink alcohol you cannot make that argument from a biblical standpoint that you're not allowed to drink alcohol at all. Now, the support for it, the very first miracle that Jesus does is turning water into wine at a wedding, right? And you do see instances where Paul actually recommends to Timothy to drink some wine for his digestive system. So we do see instances in which the Bible does support it. Now, there is overwhelming, very clear evidence that we are not to get drunk. The verses on that are very clear. So are you allowed to drink alcohol at your own discretion? Are you to get drunk? No, absolutely not. Verses on this. There's three that I'm going to give you. Uh, Isaiah 5.22. Woe to those who are heroes at drinking wine and champion at mixing drinks. When I first read that, I completely pictured uh, a frat boy, uh, college, anybody who has been in a traditional uh, secular university and been into a fraternity, you know the guy. You know that guy that is a hero uh, at drinking wine and a champion at mixing drinks and drinking challenges of who can drink the most before they pass out. Woe to you. Ephesians 5.18 do not get drunk on wine, which leads to debauchery. Instead, be filled with the Spirit. That's Ephesians 5.18. Proverbs 23.20. Do not join those who drink too much wine or gorge themselves on meat. For drunkards, drunkards and gluttons become poor, and drowsiness clothes them in rags. The other thing I will say, there is support for this idea of those who are called to ministry to not get drunk at all, to not even drink alcohol at all. The Levitical priesthood was an old covenant system set aside for uh, the priesthood and that vocation. Uh, the taking on the uh, Levitical vow meant you did not drink alcohol ever in your life or for a period of time. So there is precedence to not drink alcohol at all, especially if you are in a position of authority or if you are, regardless if you're in the church or not, or if you are a, a pastor or a person of leadership within the church, there's a strong call not to drink at all, alcohol at all. And the backing for that, and this is the end of this, is, is that Paul calls us to not do anything that would cause our brother to stumble. And for some, alcohol is a huge issue. So if they see you as a church leader or someone who has influenced um, drinking a beer, it might cause them to stumble. But the question is, Noah gets drunk. Now, I can sympathize with his situation. Everybody he has loved has died. His only peer is his wife. I've been married, uh, my wife and I have been married for 19 years. We've been together for 22. And I love her. I absolutely love her. But if it was only the two of us and our children on earth, that's a tough gig. That is tough. And then to go through the mental element of having everybody that you have ever loved be killed, 
I can understand and sympathize with Noah's situation. Uh, I'm not condoning it. I can just, you can understand why Noah may have been tempted to get drunk. Now, what happens? This is the last thing we're gonna talk about is uh, why does Noah curse Canaan? What does Ham do? Right? So we see uh, Ham, the father of Canaan, saw his father naked and told his two brothers outside. But the brothers, uh, they get a garment, and they lay it across their shoulders, and they walk backwards, uh, covering their father in his naked body. Does this justify the curse that follows? And why does Noah curse Canaan and not Ham? So Canaan is Ham's youngest male uh, child, right? So it's Noah's grandson. Noah finds out what Ham did, and he, the, the first thing he says is, cursed be Canaan. Okay, so a, a few things to talk about. First of all, I want to say this. The Bible does not tell us. The Bible doesn't tell us. So anything that you're going to that, that, that you're gonna guess, these are all, all the theories are speculation. They are us putting our perspective on it. Um, and some of the things that uh, are very interesting um, that I found, uh, I think they're quite outlandish and kind of crazy on, on the extreme on one level. The most extreme that I found is, is that there is a rabbinic, uh, meaning the uh, 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 rabbis, a Jewish perspective uh, that is held by some that Ham castrated Noah. Where you get the biblical foundation for that, I have no idea, but I could understand why Noah would be upset when he came to. Now, there's other theories are uh, rape, some homosexual element. Uh, we do not know what was done, but the one thing that is clear, Noah was humiliated and Ham did it. Whatever it was, it was a humiliating thing. Ham pointed out his father's nakedness. Now, for me, when I read this, of course, I read this uh, as a person living in 2022, and I think back to well, being a kid and going to the swimming pool and being in the locker room, and I saw a lot of dad's nakedness. Uh, mine, as well as a lot of fathers, a lot of, I mean, you're in the locker room, I don't know about today, uh, with all the stalls and protecting everything, but. I mean, that's not a, a bad thing for a son to see his father naked. I don't see it as that big of a deal. Clearly something more drastic than that happened in my mind that was humiliating. I, we don't know what it was. The Bible doesn't tell us, and so therefore we know because the Bible doesn't tell us, it's not that big of a deal and we don't need to know. But why was the curse given to Canaan, right? Why was the curse immediately given to his, his grandson, to Ham's Son. So there's two elements, and it must be one of these two, uh, in my mind. One, Canaan may have been, have been involved. Ham, Noah's son, involved his son and said, hey, look at Grandpa. Whatever happened next in this element of the drunken Noah, Canaan may have been involved. That's one theory. Uh, but yet, Noah doesn't say anything against Ham. So but we know from scripture that Ham was the one who did it, so Canaan may have been involved. Theory number two is that the punishment on Ham, the most severe punishment that Noah could give, was to punish his son. 
the love that a father has for their child is the closest thing that we can get to the love that God has for us. And so a father seeing their child punished for their wrongs would be extreme. And I think that that is likely what it is for the reason for this curse. Now, we're gonna discuss this next week when we go to chapter 10 and talking about the table of nations and how from these three family groups, these three brothers, you have uh, all the people on earth and these groups spread out. Interesting thing is, uh, as we spoke about the curse in Canaan. So Canaan is Noah's grandson, but he is uh, the father of the Canaanites. And we see this uh, the judgment on the Canaanites. The Canaanites, as a people group, occupied Canaan, the land of Canaan, before Israel came and took it over. And we see this uh, in Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy 20, verse 16 through 18. We talked about this when I mentioned the judgments. One of the judgments that God does is the judgment on the people group, the Canaans. They were an idolatrous, evil people, and judgment came on them brought through God, by, by God, through the Israelites. And the, the verse, we see the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites are all descendants of Canaan. And you are going to see this prophecy that Noah gives, um, specifically of um, Sham and Japheth uh, being superior to the Canaanites and the Canaanites uh, being servants to them. It's interesting stuff, absolutely interesting stuff. So as we wrap up, here are some questions. When you see a rainbow in the sky, what do you think? What does it conjure up in your mind? That's question number one. When you look at a rainbow, what do you see? Question number two, why did Noah get so upset? Now, this is a question that we, we do not know the answer to, um, but it's something to think about. I think it was something more severe than culturally what we see today is simply his son seeing him lying there naked being drunk. I think it must have been something worse than that, but we don't know what. In my mind, it's simply a humiliation, as is that his son humiliated him. Now, so that's a question. What do you think got Noah so upset? And here's another question. Would that situation have happened if Noah hadn't gotten drunk in the first place? Was alcohol the catalyst for this whole situation, the curse that happened? Was it caused by alcohol? Now, obviously, Noah chose to get drunk, but it's an interesting question. And those who... Uh, have dealt closely with alcoholism, you understand how destructive it can be. And then the final question, why did Noah curse his grandson Canaan as opposed to his son Ham? All three of these questions, we can't really know the answer to, but I think it's important to think about because it does relate to us directly today. When I see the story of Noah, there are two things that, that pop up in my mind. One, judgment. Uh, it sets a precedence that the world was incredibly evil uh, and God judged it and destroyed it. And that's coming. 
That is coming. Judgment is coming for every single human and for the earth. We will be accountable. Uh, as we just read, we will be accountable. Uh, but I also see, when I look at the story of Noah, God's provision and God's love. And the rainbow is a reminder of the covenant that God made with Noah and then us as his descendants of the fact that he provided Noah with an escape, with an ark, and he has provided you and me that same escape. And right now, I'm going to pray right now. And if you haven't accepted Jesus as your Savior, you can pray this prayer with me right now. It's a simple prayer. And if you are a Christian, you can pray this again. The one thing that God requires of this unconditional covenant, the new covenant, is simply that you accept it in your heart. Romans 10, 9 and 10 says, if you believe in your heart and speak with your mouth that Jesus is who he said he was, that he uh, is fully God, fully man, and that he died on the cross for your sins, you are saved. Belief in your heart is the only requirement. There aren't works. There's not, you don't need to, to, to do all of these things. It's not faith plus works. It's simply faith. So I'm going to pray right now. And if you want to accept Christ, I invite you to join me and repeat with me. Uh, and for those who are already saved, repeat it all the same. Lord, I need you. I am broken and I am in desperate need of you and your love. Lord, I invite you into my life. Come into my life and change me from the inside out. I acknowledge and believe the work that you did on the cross. Thank you for dying for my sins. Thank you for saving me. Please now come into my life and change me from the inside out. Pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. If you just prayed that for the first time, there are angels that are rejoicing in heaven and I am one in rejoicing with them. That is exciting. That is awesome news. And it's worth rejoicing. Get involved with the Christian church. Get involved. If you know someone, Lexi's excited too. If you know someone who is a Bible-believing Christian, reach out to them and say, hey, I just accepted Christ uh, and I'm on fire. Oh, here's the puppy. Come here. Come here. Come here, puppy. Uh, this is Minnie. This is Minnie. Uh, her name is Jasmine, but we call her uh, Minnie uh, for short because she has the same colorings as a burner and she's a mini burner. If you just accepted Christ, get involved with a church. Find a church that is a through the Bible church or a biblically based church and go and check it out. Talk to the pastor. Let him know that you are a new believer and get involved. I love you guys. Next week, we are going to cover, uh, hi, yes, hi, Jasmine. Next week, we're going to cover uh, Genesis chapter 10, where we're going to see the genealogy and the table of nations. And then uh, next after that is Genesis 11, where we get the Tower of Babel. I love you guys. Have a phenomenal week, and we'll see you next week. Jasmine loves you too.